Yeah, part of the goal in the early initial stages of our strategy is to study examples of other areas like Portugal, like Uruguay, um, who have legalized and understand what worked and what didn't work. There are some great examples in Portugal where the Institution of Education actually stepped up to the plate in a really big way to help kids at an early age understand the harm uh, of drug use and really use that societal pressure, in a, you know, the positive pressure against harmful use rather than the, the lever of legal pressure to ensure that the way in which these policies were rolled out were ultimately better for people and enabling them to live more meaningful and fulfilled lives rather than having those negative unintended consequences that you mentioned. That is Brianna Newfer. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is criminal justice reform. How should substance abuse and drug addiction be dealt with in a free society? That's what Brianna Neufer and Jeremiah Mostel are talking about today. Brianna leads the Criminal Justice Reform Priority Initiative for the Stand Together community, and Jeremiah is a senior member of our policy team focused on criminal justice reform. Now, this podcast was recorded on April 6th, 2021, and in the conversation that follows, you'll hear us use terms like community and vision. You'll hear us talk about mutually reinforcing principles, and before we get into the interview, let's talk about what those things mean. Americans for Prosperity Foundation and the Grassroots Leadership Academy are part of the Stand Together community. A link to the Stand Together website is included in the show notes. In each episode, we focus heavily on how our vision guides our decisions in the different specific areas of focus we're trying to impact. We call these priority initiatives, and we sometimes abbreviate them to PI or PIs. The vision is ambitious. We break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. And this moves our society towards one of mutual benefit, where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. The vision is built on four mutually reinforcing principles, which we'll also discuss. The principles are equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, and self-actualization. You can find the vision and the four mutually reinforcing principles in the show notes. Now, Let's talk about what drug policy in a society of mutual benefit looks like. This is an issue that just looking at it, I mean, there, there's news reports out today about this uh, coalition that's starting. And there might there might be some who think that this is a brand new issue for us, that we're dealing with something for the first time ever. And yet this is not a brand new issue, is it? This is something we've been dealing in for years. Brianna, how long have we been dealing with this? And then I guess I, I guess I need to know what was it that motivated us to get involved in this issue in the first place? 
So if you think about the fundamental vision across the Stand Together community to break down the barriers that keep people from achieving their full potential and move us towards a free and open society where people succeed by helping others, fundamentally what that requires is that each of our key institutions are playing their productive roles. And so when that doesn't happen in any area of policy, it creates this discord and Unfortunately, it ultimately creates incredible barriers for individuals to find fulfillment and really be able to maximize their contributions. And that's exactly what's happened with criminal justice system writ large, but specifically the drug issue and our society's response to a harmful relationship with drugs, right? So you can see where the criminal justice system has played this outsized role in um, addressing the very real barriers that come from addiction and substance use disorders. But instead of having the institution of community rise to meet that need with solutions that are really tailored around the key causes and drivers that that are causing a person to either use substances or get involved in producing and selling substances. What we have created is a monopoly for the institution of government to respond. And what that does in in our society is it creates this incredible stigma where people struggling with addiction can't look for help because they're facing a jail sentence, right? They're they're facing the risk of being torn from their families and communities and experiencing the long-lasting collateral consequences of a criminal record based on their involvement with drugs. You've mentioned barriers a couple of times, and of course, the Stand Together vision, we break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. Can you, can you put a clear definition or a clear idea on what some of those barriers are that you're talking about when when someone gets involved in this when when they're dealing with a substance abuse problem what are barriers that are put in their place that we're trying to break down so we see employment barriers right addiction is often a key driver in joblessness and a person's inability to hold down a job um, or to be able to grow in their contribution and their career path. We see barriers as it relates to community engagement, participating in their children's school events, really being present with their family and with their community. And frankly, we see a lot of barriers created for the innocent bystanders, if you will, based on the way in which pushing drugs underground into a black market has brought violence. If you look at you know, a lot of, of the recent media attention around the one-year anniversary of the death of Breonna Taylor, she was an innocent bystander. She, her, There had been some drug activity associated with her address previously. And unfortunately, that because of the policy structure that we've created, enabled law enforcement to be able to secure a, a, a warrant to enter the premises, guns were fired, and she lost her life as a result. So the barriers really range. I mean, everything from an unnecessary loss of life to an inability to show up and be present at work and be successful at one's job and, and everything in between. There's such a vast array of barriers that I can't see it. I can't see a one 
size fits all solution. And this is this is going to be bigger than just one organization. This is this is bigger than Americans for Prosperity. This is this is going to take, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, almost the entire capability of the stand together community. You're entirely right, Twain. And not only that, but it also spans priority initiatives. So it, the, this implicates not just criminal justice reform, but it implicates the poverty priority initiative. It implicates health care because ultimately what we're saying is we want to see an America where all people can learn, contribute, realize their full potential, create lives of meaning and fulfillment and addiction and harmful use of substances and society's response, specifically the criminal justice response are standing in the way of that. And so to really be effective, we have to lean in on our bottom-up solutions approach to be able to mobilize those community-based solutions that can help people really prevent and overcome addiction and, and harmful relationship with drugs to create the, those lives of meaning. And, and just as one very small example, you can see that as it relates to healthcare, um, because the government has a monopoly in this space, it's really prohibited research on many of these substances and substances that, you know, preliminary um, experimental work has shown could potentially be great treatment options for things such as PTSD, seizures, other condition, health conditions. And so we really need to get roll back the, the government's monopoly in this space to be able to free up all of the other institutions to adequately address the harm that's being caused. Duane, I think it's important for us to put in context. We're talking about our current response and what has been the outcome of that current response. So I think it's important to put that into context and see what is that, how is that response working out? If we look at the data, we know it's simply not working, not beyond the harms it's causing. It's not even achieving the intended goal of reducing substance use or addiction either. We see that drug overdose death rates in the United States have consistently increased over recent decades. In 1970s, it was about one out of every 100,000 people were dying from drug overdoses. Today, it's now over 20 out of 100,000 people are dying because of drug overdoses. When we look at use by itself, we're spending $46 billion on this system of criminalization but if you look at the data on actual illicit drug use, it fluctuates over time, but there's no response to when we spend more or we spend less or we push harder or we pull back on enforcement. We're not seeing that the way we're dealing with this problem is actually reducing drug use. So we need to rethink, as Brianna is saying, we need to rethink our response in this area if we're going to help with the external and internal barriers here. Would you say that right now we're dealing with with drug abuse and drug addiction as strictly a legal matter and it, and ignoring the health concerns there? Is that is that what I'm hearing? I would say it depends on which type of drug. For illicit drugs that are scheduled on the federal level, we're talking marijuana, heroin. Yes, we're responding to them through criminalization, through locking people in prison and not dealing with the underlying reasons why they use those drugs. In recent years, we've been dealing with the opioid epidemic. There was a different response there. There was some criminalization, but there was also a strong public health response to help people that are dealing with that form of addiction. And we saw some better results there. We're seeing people achieve health if they can get off of those substances, but that's because we took a different approach. So my question would be, why are we not taking that approach in every type of drug? They're all harmful. 
That's absolutely right. Really what you have is this inconsistent public narrative that treats addiction, particularly drug addiction, as either a criminal justice issue or a public health issue. But both of those tend to lead towards top-down solutions that are ineffective. So we can really step in to provide a better model, a better path forward, where we elevate bottom-up community-based solutions to, as Jeremiah pointed out, really address the reasons why a person ends up finding themselves with a harmful relationship with drugs. When we look at this issue, we have, you've mentioned it before, it's such a huge issue. It spans not only organizations within the Stand Together community, it spans PIs within the Stand Together community. Help me understand then the entire vision for how we are going to holistically deal with this with drugs. So in terms of long-term objectives, first and foremost, we want to see a society where community-based solutions are the primary means of addressing issues of addiction and harmful drug use, not the criminal justice system. What that means then is that all substances that are addictive or physically harmful, could have physically harmful effects, are governed by a legal market with narrow but pragmatic regulations. So that's important because we only want to see regulations where there's significant direct negative externalities and not ones that are unnecessarily onerous, which create this cronyist market or you have government basically granting monopolies to certain um, businesses or organizations within uh, this newly created drug industry, because that would be incredibly counterproductive. And unfortunately, it's the direction that some states have gone, and I think you're going to talk more about that in a future episode of your podcast. But really, the criminal justice system's role should be limited to police those in violation of the legal market regulations and any other criminal activity, regardless of an association with drug use. So you can imagine, you know, if a person has consumed a drug in a way and then chooses to commit a crime, absolutely appropriate to address that crime. But it's not going to be helpful in addressing the underlying issues that are causing them to have that harmful relationship with drugs. That's where we want to see those community-based solutions coming into play. One other thing I'll just say, Dwayne, related to what is kind of our long-term vision of a better state here, we really believe that if we are successful in rolling back the – the overgrown role that the government has played here in in elevating community-based solutions and the other key institutions, that the results are going to be really an explosion of robust research that helps us understand the underlying drivers of addiction and inform non-punitive responses. We should see positive data trends relating to employment, people able, better able to keep jobs. We should see fewer overdose deaths. We should see expanded health benefits from drugs currently under-researched and underdeveloped that have a lot of promise in that regard. Uh, We should see fewer people unnecessarily in prison, and and ultimately we want to see less crime and violence. Those are some of the key indicators that uh, we're looking for as we roll out this holistic strategy on drugs, um, because at the end of the day, we really believe that this is not only philosophically consistent from a classical liberal perspective, but it's better for society along all of the indicators that we care most about. It sounds 
like what you're saying is that the stand together vision is that addiction and harmful use of drugs has terrible short and long term consequences. But the war on drugs is just basically a failed big government program that's made the problem worse. And moving forward, we, we need a new approach, one that doesn't criminalize addiction and instead focuses on community based solutions and treatment. Is that about right? That's exactly right. That's our vision. We believe the criminal justice system is not the best way to address harmful use of drugs or addiction. Um, and so AFP is really pushing policy reform, starting with a focus on ma legalizing marijuana, which is why AFP is a proud member of the newly launched Cannabis Freedom Alliance at the federal level and working across the states. And other parts of our community, like Stand Together Foundation, are supporting more community-based solutions to really elevate treatment and a different approach to the barriers that are created by addiction and harmful drug use. Yeah, Dwayne, I, I just wanted to jump in and I think to make it cl crystal clear for listeners, um, there's a saying that we say around here a lot that I think is really helpful. We want to do more than prevent people from dying. We want to help them live. Our goal is, yes, we want to stop these overdoses that we talked about. We want to we want to deal with the negative points here. But our guiding light is how do we help people live fulfilled lives and achieve their full potential? And the current system is not doing that. So how can we help them live? And it requires, like Brianna said, those community-based solutions like the Phoenix and like others that help them connect to their purpose and their potential. When you start talking about the trade-offs, we've talked about this before where you can – I mean, you mentioned it earlier. There's there's violence. There's the, uh, the accidental no-knock raids on the wrong houses. There's the overdoses because they're more afraid of getting put in jail than going to the hospital. When you start talking about those trade-offs – how can you be sure that the trade-offs from our vision are going to be better than the trade-offs from prohibition? Yeah, part of the goal in the early initial stages of our strategy is to study examples of other areas like Portugal, like Uruguay, um, who have legalized and understand what worked and what didn't work. There are some great examples in Portugal where the institution of education actually stepped up to the plate in a really big way to help kids at an early age understand the harm uh, of drug use and really use that societal pressure in a, you know the positive pressure against harmful use rather than the the lever of legal pressure to ensure that the way in which these policies were rolled out were ultimately better for people and enabling them to live more meaningful and fulfilled lives rather than having those negative unintended consequences that you mentioned. And Duane, I think we have a great example from our own country with alcohol prohibition, where at one point we prohibited the use of that substance and we changed our mind. We turned our minds around that. We we stopped what was the big Al Capone, all the gangs that were involved around that. We we stopped them from happening. But we saw communities come around people. And I don't wanna don't wanna downplay that, that we still have major problems as a country with alcohol. And in a lot of communities, it's still a big problem. But we've seen a lot of community institutions, whether it be churches, Alcoholics Anonymous, other great community institutions that have stepped up to support people who want to achieve full health. And I think we can do the same thing with these substances as well. It's important that you, you're pointing out, and I like the fact that you pointed out, that there are still problems with alcohol. And it needs to be stated 
if this vision is realized, there will still be problems with drug addiction. There will still be problems with overdoses. It goes back to something I've repeatedly said on the podcast. There are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. And we have to accept the better set of trade-offs for what is better for society, what's going to help people break through barriers and, and reach their full potential. Sorry, that's right, Dwayne. And I just wanted to say, you know, you still have police pulling people over for drunk driving, right? You would you would experience the same for any kind of impaired driving, regardless of what the substance is. But the difference is you don't have police breaking down people's doors at 2 a.m. for uh, for the fact that they have alcohol present, right? The fact that they had friends over and they distributed that alcohol to their friends, and ultimately the the way in which you're going to have less unnecessary contact with police that often terms deadly, I think is going to be a significant benefit to our vision as as we realize it on drugs. You don't see um, gang wars over bootleg, you know, bathtub gin anymore either. You don't you don't see that, which is one of the benefits. Again, there are no solutions. There are only trade offs. What I'm most curious about is if you can both help me understand how we see the institutions of business, the institutions of education and community stepping up to the plate. When you start thinking about the the other key institutions, when it comes to a problem as big as the drug problem, help me understand some solutions that you can imagine or that you actually know about and see today in business, in education, in the community that you see stepping up and even getting better. So I mentioned the Phoenix earlier, and I think that's a phenomenal model for understanding what a person needs to successfully overcome their addiction to alcohol or drugs or any other substance. And that is a community around them that's united by shared interests. In the case of the Phoenix, of course, um, they build gyms and athletic exercises that can building interest. I think having more solutions like that, expanding the marketplace of options for addiction support and treatment, particularly within the institution of communities, is going to be key to realizing our vision. But I also mentioned in in um, Portugal how the education system has changed. And, and, and if you look at the curriculum that's been developed, this was a, a light bulb moment for me that I learned from the book Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari. Great book on this issue. If you really want to dive deep, I recommend it. But he talked about how they're, instead of using the DARE approach, which is, of course, what we have done is from the 90s, sort of scaring kids out of it or threatening kids away from drugs, which then, as you see, for many children, creates this forbidden allure that they actually want to dabble in it because it's a way that they can express themselves or rebel against authority. And then, unfortunately, what often happens is if if kids indulge in, in low levels of marijuana, for example, they realize the sky didn't fall, right? It, it wasn't as bad as, as the adult figures told them. And so they discredit all of it. Whereas if you look at an alternative, which is what exists in, in Portugal, they actually walk kids through the decision-making process of like, here's what would happen to your brain, right? Here's how the chemicals actually interact and 
could create long-term damage for you. And they give them more tools and more knowledge so that they can actually make better decisions themselves. And it becomes uncool instead of this sort of cool thing that rebellious kids do. It's like, who would ever want to partake in something that's going to potentially hinder me and my ability to succeed in the future or even in the present. So I think really thinking about, to your point, Dwayne, reframing the narrative and the conversation around these substances is going to be absolutely essential. And we've seen it work, right? Think about the campaigns around smoking, for example, and the dramatic impact that those have had. So those are some great models that we can follow with drugs as well. And Duane, I think business has an important part to play in this. I think there's two roles that a business can play. First, it's reducing the stigma of seeking treatment. So allow someone, if they have a problem, don't fire them or not hire them because of a past problem. But also I think business has a role to play as a conduit. They can actually encourage people that work there or that could potentially work there to seek treatment rather than firing them immediately. So business can come around those people and support them and be part, a plank of that community that they need. And we've seen a bunch of businesses do that. Uh, Some of our friends at Addiction Policy Forum have actually built out amazing resources that both industry groups and businesses can work and use. And there are free resources for their members to get connected to treatment, to get connected to support. But without the business support, without their employer support to actually connect to those resources, there's not as much incentive and there's not as much support for them to actually do it. Thinking about business, I was I was thinking that there's nothing stopping in this vision. There's nothing stopping a business from saying, okay, drugs are legal, but I don't want people who work here using, so we're still going to do tests. And it, that's completely rational, right? And I was thinking we would see that maybe treated the same way as, as alcohol. You don't want bus drivers coming in to work drunk. You don't want your teachers in your school coming in to work drunk. So you could have the same standards or even more rigorous put in place by businesses. Am I, am I wrong in thinking that? No, you're absolutely right. So let's talk about, let's talk, we've talked about barriers. We've talked about the barriers that we're dealing with now and the barriers that we could see being broken. Let's talk about equal rights. When we think about this issue from the lens of equal rights, how how is our vision more respectful of equal rights than prohibition or the problems we're dealing with in drugs now? What we see now in the status quo is this extensive web of laws criminalizing use, production, sale, even just association with drugs. And what that does in practice is it gives law enforcement vast discretion around enforcement decisions. And so that opens the door for a lack of equality under the law, right? Because so much has been criminalized, it's impossible to enforce all of those laws all of the time in every single neighborhood equally. And what that translates to in practice is, unfortunately, um, looking at the racial demographics, a black person is over three times more likely to be arrested for marijuana in particular than a white person, even though um, most of the research shows that drug use is fairly constant across demographics that changes slightly based on the particular drug. But we've seen that the effect of the war on drugs and our current drug policy in in the country has vastly disproportionately impacted minority communities, communities of color. One thing that comes to mind when I think about equal rights, and this is kind of a, a way out there, 
connection to equal rights. But I think about all the money and time and effort that goes into enforcing drug laws. And I also think about all the rape kits that have never been tested. And I think about all the murders that have never been solved. And those victims have a right to justice too. And yet we're spending so much time, talent, and treasure in just one arena that those victims are neglected. Is that something that you see as a way of being more respectful of equal rights? Dwayne, I think I think that is a perfect point. As I mentioned earlier, we spend $46 billion on drug enforcement every year. And even though we're spending that much money, clearance rates for property and violent crimes since the 1990s have not changed at all. Even though crime rates have declined 50 percent, we're, we're spending money on the wrong thing and we're not achieving a public safety benefit here. So you're right. We have victims that are left without a resolution to their crime because law enforcement is focusing on the wrong thing. Whereas if we could take at least a lot of that $46 billion, shift it into murder, shift it into rape, shift it even into property crime, we can start solving more than 45 percent of violent crimes. And as you know, our perspective on policing is that police ought to focus their attention and resources on preventing and solving serious violent crime. And this absolutely creates an incentive in the opposite direction. You think about policies such as civil asset forfeiture and the famous story about the highway running east-west across Tennessee where you have all of the the vehicles lined up on the the side of the road where the money is coming out, not where the drugs are going in. You, You have created this um, black market, which also has this sort of symbiotic relationship within the institution of police in itself. And it totally shifts the way in which, uh, law enforcement leadership makes decisions about how to prioritize their time on the streets. When you think about mutual benefit, you've, we've, we've said that this vision will create a set of trade-offs that are better overall for society. Is that the only way when you think about this vision and dealing with the, the problem with drugs, where's the mutual benefit? Because some folks are going to say this is not going to be mutually beneficial. This is going to create more problems than it solves. Yeah, I definitely think there is an aspect of mutual benefit here. If you think about how to the earlier points around it's better for people, it's better for families if community can come around them and address the dynamics associated with addiction. What little research we have suggests that um, often that might be something like childhood trauma or a lack of meaning and belonging and connection. And that's really been crowded out by this this restrictive government approach. And so people can't really get the help they need and help others, right? It it isolates people by pinning them with a criminal record and it dampens the ability to for people to find meaning in helping other people overcome their addiction and their harmful relationship with substances. And Duane, I think it I think it extends beyond just this particular problem. Someone who's dealing with addiction or harmful use of substances can't provide value beyond this particular issue. So they're never going to be able to be fully effective in their job. They're never going to be able to be fully connected to their family. And so that's why our goal is to actually help people live full and fulfilling lives beyond addiction, to get beyond addiction. That is our goal. That is our North Star. How is it mutually beneficial to the police, though? I think because they can better spend resources on what they're actually supposed to be spending resources on. And that is public safety. That is violent crime. 
right now, a lot of them are dealing with problems with recruitment and with feeling overwhelmed. But that's because we've asked them to do so many things and to deal with so many community problems that we can handle more effectively through other means. I see photos on Facebook every once in a while of police officers standing around a table and on the table are stacks of marijuana and we or uh, money and and all this other stuff. And I don't know, I, I see some cops in, or some police and they, they look proud. I think that the pride in, in solving a kidnapping or bringing in a violent felon or in bringing justice to somebody who's been done wrong in, in a very personal and private way, I think that pride in, in work would be greater than than a Facebook photo. And even if it's completely private, even if it's never publicized, that pride, I think that brings a lot more fulfillment to a police officer than than playing his current part or her current part in in the uh, the drug situation now. And I, I I guess I see that as as being a part of the mutual benefit that might not be as public, but is as powerful just the same. It absolutely is powerful. And Dwayne, many of the conversations I've had with law enforcement who entered the profession because they cared a lot about this issue and they felt like uh, cracking down on it through enforcement means and and criminal justice policies was going to eliminate the drug problem in America or at least greatly hamstrung it, they're on the front lines. And so they are often the first to say, what we're doing isn't working, right? I'm, I'm arresting the same guy and taking him to jail every couple of months because of of his addiction problem and that's not helping me it's not helping him it's not helping the community it's not addressing serious issues of violence and it's not what they signed up for ultimately what what many law enforcement officers signed up for and so i think showing them that there's a better path forward that they can feel more fulfilled and effective in their roles is going to be a huge component of moving this strategy forward as well. And I think that's why we've seen jurisdictions across the country step up and create diversion programs, create drug courts, create ways to deal with these problems and deal with the root causes. And that's really great, and I'm glad they're doing that. But the problem is, is the second you are arrested, the impact of a criminal record hits you. A mere arrest carries a lot of the collateral consequences, a lot of the problems of being involved in the criminal justice system that Dwayne, you, I know you and I have talked about and others have talked with you about. So we have to start early. We have to prevent. We can't just try and deal with the problem after it's already been identified, after someone's already gone too far and that they've interacted with the criminal justice system. We need to try and prevent them from getting there in the first place. How do we consider openness when it comes to this vision? And the first thing I'm thinking of is if we have the free market that you described, we wouldn't have the black market that we have now. And I know there have been other states who have who have decriminalized or legalized and then put in place only these people can grow. There can only be these certain amounts of people. Oh, and the taxes are going to be ridiculously high. And I can just see the people in the black market going, pass more stuff, please. That That's good for us. Is that what we talk about when we talk about openness in this, is having that market that allows for the free flow of, of information, product. Absolutely. That's right. And really thinking about it as lifting restrictions on research and through that regulated drug market, you can, you can see innovations such as medical uses can thrive and 
an open market is better positioned to limit the harmful uses like impure synthetic products and and eliminate those we we can only do that by removing drugs from the dangerous underground markets of the status quo yeah and i think we we see this problem even after states have legalized when we're talking about marijuana specifically the fact that the federal government still has it scheduled means that no one can engage in testing to figure out ways to deal with the problems that we know exist after legalization. So we're essentially stuck in this limbo phase whenever the federal government has not acted, but a lot of states have acted. And so what we really need is to make sure that researchers and industry can actually do the research that needs to be done, but it takes action on both sides of federalism for that to actually effectively occur. I saw a headline recently that said there was a psychiatrist that had been secretly using mushrooms as a way to treat PTSD. Is this the type of innovation that you're talking about when it comes to dealing with with mental health issues? That's exactly right. And there have been, again, the research is super limited here, but there have been some studies that suggest that medicinal uses of cannabis could be more effective painkillers than the more addictive forms of opioids, which you see in many of today's prescription pills. So there's there's potentially, I mean, just uh, totally unexplored horizons as it relates to positive uses that these drugs can have. And and we'd certainly need to, to have a, a system in place to be able to catch the bad actors. But that's what can occur when you have a more open market. How are we looking at self-actualization through this? Uh, because there, I can already hear some folks saying it's going to be hard to self-actualize if you, you know, you're high all the time. It's going to be, it's going to be high to self-actualize if you're on hallucinogens. How do we look at self-actualization, and how do we apply it to this vision? Yeah, I think it's similar to to what we've said before. Certainly, a harmful relationship to drugs limits your ability to self-actualize. We are not we are not arguing with that at all. We're not saying that you know everybody should go and and use all the drugs that they want, and that's going to move us to towards a freer, more open society. Um, no, that's not the point of view. But rather than positioning all the key institutions to effectively address this barrier created by a, a bad relationship with drugs, the current approach to the United States gives government a monopoly. And what we're saying is it creates more harm than good when it's trying to address the harm caused by this harmful relationship with drugs. And so how can we, we believe that by pulling back the government's role, we can better equip families, communities, businesses, education institution to more appropriately address the limits to self-actualization that addiction and a harmful relationship with drugs causes. Well, I guess the way I would think about that also is it's very hard to self-actualize if you get shot in your own home because of a no-knock raid gone wrong. It's really hard to self-actualize if you're a six-year-old girl who was shot in a drive-by in the middle of a drug war. And to go back to the idea that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. And yes, some people may create an unhealthy relationship with with drugs, and that may prohibit their self-actualization, but that 
That's no different than what's going on right now. We're seeing yeah. that every day. What this will allow is more people to have the opportunity to seek out self-actualization. This vision, I wouldn't say, is a guarantee. No vision is a guarantee that someone will make the right decisions in life and that everybody will benefit. That's that's absurd. That's utopia. That's not what our vision tries to say. Our vision says we will break barriers that allow, that give people the opportunity to reach their most their, their greatest potential. That's exactly right. One last big thank you to both Brianna and Jeremiah for taking the time to talk with us and to break down a very complex topic into some digestible pieces that I think we can help uh, better understand. Now, if you have any questions about this part of the Criminal Justice Reform Priority Initiative or any of the other priority initiatives we've talked about before, please send them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. And if you haven't taken the opportunity to leave a review of the podcast, please consider doing that right now on whatever platform or service you're listening to us on. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you then.